Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick Adamaro, and Ben Gracier, back in the dark on the data mining. It's episode 36. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we have a special guest, Hats on Lamp. How are you doing, Hats? Uh, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. No, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who don't know, Hats on Lamp was sitting at number one in the draft ranking for quite a bit this month and has been participating a bunch in the Discord. So we asked him on the show and he said yes. So we're really excited to hear his insight into the new draft format. So this week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, a couple of announcements, Listener of the Week, Card of the Week, 7-Win Run Breakdown, our main topic, which Hats suggested, which is attacking, are you doing it enough? And then we'll do a quick review of a draft. So to begin, Hats, uh, how was your draft week? Uh, it was a mild disaster. It was, <laughs> it was not great. Uh, I am not in rank one anymore right now. Uh, and uh, that's, because, uh, that's because of a couple of things. I was on a trip for about a week. I went on a very lovely road trip, and I didn't play Eternal at all that whole week. And when I came back, I had completely lost my edge. And uh, I'd slipped to rank two. Someone had snuck ahead of me. So uh, I did a couple of drafts and just train wrecked them and dropped in the rankings quite a bit. Uh, and I guess the other reason is that I was playing uh, towards the end of the month on Sunday, and what happens, apparently, is that a lot of people who have not reached Masters yet and might not have that high a ranking in various ways uh, are playing. And sometimes you lose to them. And if you are in like the top 10 ranking and you lose to someone in gold, you take a real hammering. So mm. I dropped real fast and then I climbed back up to about 11 or 12. And now I'm uh, now I'm fine. I should be I should be clear I'm not complaining like I had a good run <laughs> it was fine but but this was the worst week since the new format started for sure. So would you consider yourself a competitive drafter? I would, yeah. And that's just because of how I feel when I'm winning and how I feel when I'm losing, which is something I just can't do anything about. <laughs> yes, no, I I understand that exactly. It's uh, it's amazing. You can kind of see like there's a, a lot of different perspectives on that. And I'm I'm closer to you. I don't draft enough, nor I'm good enough to say rank quite that high. But you know, it's amazing some of the drafters in the Discord and. You know, they draft all the time, but are always like exploring new things and like just like having fun. And they're like, oh, I went 03, no big deal. Time to draft again. And I'm just like when <laughs> I, I have a lot of trouble trying to get myself to that place. So the other question I really wanted to talk to you about is just sort of like ladder anxiety. And how how do you feel or deal with it when you get, say, when you're like climbing the ranks and start getting to say, like even top 10 masters and you're just like, and like you said, one loss can do such a walloping to your ranking. Like, is that a thing you struggle with or? It is to some degree. I, I tend to play draft a lot more uh, when I haven't gotten that high in the rankings yet. And then once I get higher, uh, there's a lot more anxiety attached to each draft. Um, and then once I reach rank one, sometimes I just stop drafting entirely. And it's not my favorite thing about myself, 
because I do enjoy Eternal and I enjoy drafting for the fun of it as well. But I, I definitely it definitely feels important once I especially once I reach rank one and I have to remind myself that this is a game that I enjoy and not to take the next draft too seriously. <laughs> So, like, especially how this coincided with a new format. So when you're when you're in a new format and you're doing really well, once you hit, like, those high master ranks, do you think you're still sort of exploring the format? Or are you just, like, really focused on trying to just, like, draft the best, like, a, the known quantity best deck? When um, Barefoot used to be on the podcast, he talked about, like, at the beginning of set five, like, Rokano seemed to be underdrafted and he just went hard into Rokano in every draft and sort of like went straight into masters by drafting this like really solid aggro deck that people weren't prepared for that he could sort of exploit like people exploring the new meta. Yeah, uh, that's what I did in the last format. Uh, Fire was underdrafted for pretty much all of set six, and I I got to rank one during that format as well by just going hard into Fire every time I saw that it was at all open. So there's that. It was more dramatic during that set than anything I've been able to find during this set. I haven't seen anything uh, super underdrafted, although there are cards that seem to be still undervalued. But at the beginning of a format, I'm pretty experimental and I lose a lot because I want to see if any of the new synergies or anything are are worth going into and how powerful they are. And uh, I usually don't get a seven win draft um, right away. And then I'll suddenly get a whole bunch of seven win drafts in a row and I start expecting to win. And that's usually when I get up into the top 10 or, or wherever I end up. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I go through a bad period and then I go through a very, very good period. And then usually I stop playing quite as much and uh, everyone catches up and then uh, I probably lose a few ranks or whatever and, and settle into wherever I'm supposed to be. That doesn't right. really mean anything, but <laughs> I won't necessarily be uh, be one of the top 10 or anything after that because the once the once the format settles itself and people start learning what the really genuinely powerful stuff is, sometimes I will have lost interest by then even and I won't be playing as much, so... So just the format will, format will take off without me. It depends. I, I go through weeks where I don't play very much Eternal at all, and then I go through periods like like uh, with this new set where I'm, I'm playing quite a bit of it just because I enjoy playing with the new cards so much. Have you found anything that seemed to be successful for you? Like any color combination? In uh, this set? Combray is usually pretty reliably great. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just because the commons in Time and Justice are so insanely powerful compared to the other colors. Yes. Uh, so when the synergy doesn't come together, you end up with something that is at least playable and can win a few games. Whereas things can fall apart pretty hard if you if you go into other colors. I have not had any luck personally playing Onis in Justice Fire. I know a lot of people have had really powerful synergistic decks that way, but that has not been how it's panned out for me. I will try, I will pick up a bunch of Onis in the first pack and see zero for the rest of the draft, uh, which defies statistics. I've seen the I've seen the uh, the draft packs. I know how many Onis there are. I will not see them if I try to draft them. So that's not advice. That's just my bad luck. <laughs> yeah. But that's how uh, I feel with the mill deck, actually. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. how do I start with three Calamity Oracles and then, like, yeah. have zero yeah. oh, synergy I've, I've seen three Calamity Oracles in the first five packs or so, I don't know, basically every time I draft. And if I, if I take them, 
I'm doomed. There is no way. <laughs> it is a good way. It is a good way for for all of the other cards for the rest of the draft to not say discard on them or curse or anything. Uh, the most synergistic deck that I've drafted and probably the most fun one uh, was in the second pack. I took a Wretched Raven, which is the zero five. Uh, flyer for four power and one primal, I think. And it gains plus two attack every time at the end of any turn in which someone discarded. And I picked it up because it was a weak pack and I thought this is a potentially powerful card. And then I saw two more Wretched Ravens over the next couple of packs. And mm -hmm. then I just took everything that said discard on it and it worked out perfectly. It is the only synergistic deck I've played during this entire draft format. It was hilariously fun. I don't expect it to ever happen again. No, I agree. I don't know if maybe this is true of your experience in Eternal, but I, I harp on this a lot in the, the podcast, but synergy decks just never seem to work out for me in Eternal draft formats. It's been like three formats now that I've been doing this podcast, and I always have just so much more luck, luck going with just sort of objectively powerful strategies as compared to trying these synergy decks. But then when I'm playing online, you see people like, Cosmos and um, some of these like really high level or even like isomorphic playing these just like crazy synergy decks that always whoop me and then whenever I try to put them together it never seems to work yeah that's been my experience too you're not seeing the journey that got them to that point you know yeah you just see the end result which is them destroying you and then you can't duplicate it because you didn't see that part of the story all right, so as for my draft week, I actually had a pretty good draft week. Our Sunday farmer's market got rained out, so I had all of Sunday free. So I got to play a bunch of draft. I've been doing pretty medium. I just kind of 4-3 draft after draft after draft. Had a lot of luck with time, and then I went outside my time comfort zone. But I don't know, didn't have much luck. <laughs> I, it's kind of what we're, we're talking about just then, where I just feel like picking... I always feel a lot more comfortable when I have like a Gradov's favored in my deck than sure. when I don't. Yeah. And it just did feel like, sort of speaking on that, and one of the reasons I actually think time is one of the better colors in the format is that the games I was playing did feel a little snowball-y. I know I've been talking about there's a lot of board stalls, but I think that was mostly because I was in time and could create the board stalls. But then whenever I ventured out of like a time-based deck, I felt like if I didn't have early plays to like to match my opponents, I would just get run over. And a lot of the other colors didn't feel like they had like a great sort of comeback card at common, like Gradov's favored. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not looking at the card list right now, but I don't think any of the other factions have uh, have the meat and potatoes kind of cards the way that time does. Like you, do, like it's it's really a safe it's really safe to take a bunch of Spike Tail Kieran's and Grodov's favorites because then you have strong early game and strong late game, and then then you cobble together the best deck you can considering that those bases are already covered. And if you're in any of the other colors, it's a lot harder to do that. So now on to announcements. So first, I would like to thank all of our patrons of the podcast. Uh, you, you all help make this show possible, and we really appreciate your support uh, month in and month out. So I'd like to thank Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Tokut, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Marshall, Cassandrath, Jed Bahamarid, Raven Dragon, Esrich0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yistow. Uh, so once again, thank you for contributing to the show. 
and allowing us to do it and have great guests like Hats on Lamps. Hat on Lamps. Hat. It's Hats it? on Lamps. They're both plural. Okay. Hats on Lamps. Visualize several lamps with several hats on them. Well, the, your, the problem is your icon is just one hat and one lamp. Yeah, that's fair. It's deceiving. <laughs> and then uh, two other quick announcements. One is I'd like to once again recommend everyone look at some of the um, content that Jedi EJ is producing. He's continuing to release weekly episodes of the Creator Showdown. This last week had me versus Sunnyvale, which, uh, spoiler alert, didn't quite go in my favor, but ended, I think, with a pretty epic Game 3. And he's just been really knocking it out of the park, streaming, podcasting, releasing sort of these really well-edited videos. I'm not sure how anyone has the time to do all that, but I'm glad he, he does. And then finally, we are about to start our next Discord tournament. Uh, this time, once again, speaking of Jedi EJ, is he created a, dra a cube for Eternal. And so we're doing a draft of his cube for the tournament. And then we're all going to play our the usual format of a best of three round robin. So everyone, I would recommend everyone participate. You have two weeks to play your games, so it's really low pressure. I hardly ever play Eternal, as it turns out, and I'm still able to play all the games. So it is possible, and it's been a lot of fun. And you get to have your name in red for a month on Discord. So I recommend everyone to check out the Discord and play in the tournament. Okay, so now on to the Eternal-related topics. So Hats, what's your card of the week? Uh, my card of the week is Inflict Conscience. Okay, so what do you think? This is great, because this was a, a sort of a hotly debated card. Yeah, I was one of the people debating it. Uh, <laughs> and... I think that's uh, I think that's what made it uh, my favorite for the pick is because it um, it's an interesting card because if 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 two good eternal players can disagree that much about a card then that's it's probably something worth talking about. Mm -hmm. So where do you land on this card? Uh, my opinion about it has changed over time. It is a one power, one justice curse that goes on your opponent's unit, and when that unit deals damage, it dies. My opinion on it has changed from, uh, I thought that it was basically unplayable at first, and this was my thought process. It gives control to your opponent of the flow of the game. You're basically telling your opponent, okay, the next time this creature uh, involves itself in the game, it's going to die, but it's up to you what function it serves. You can trade with one of my units, in which case you are trading one of your cards for two of mine, and it's giving an advantage to you. You can attack with it one last time for lethal damage, potentially. You can bounce it back to your hand and destroy the curse. You can silence your own unit and remove the curse that way. There's a lot of options that your opponent has after you play this card. And in general, when I'm playing a limited game, I like to remove options from my opponent rather than grant them more. It's not actually granting them more options. Obviously, they can do all of those things with a creature when the curse isn't on it, but it isn't taking very many options away. I have, I've changed my mind to some degree because I think you need a certain amount of removal in your deck, and it is a functional way of getting rid of certain types of cards, but I wouldn't play it in a very aggressive deck because it is essentially telling a creature it doesn't it doesn't do any of the things that you want it to do if you're doing a lot of attacking because you want the thing out of your way so that it can't block your units at all. 
you don't want to kill it if it blocks your units. You want to get damage through. See, I I thought that at least in certain aggro decks, it might not be so bad. Like in a, a more of like a go wide Oni deck where if they play something with a big butt, you're like, oh, well, I can never attack again. While with this, like you're you're losing one of your little dorks, but at least you're taking their person off, the, you know, their creature off the board and I allowing think- you to then attack in again. I think that's a benefit that is not worth a card in your deck, uh, mm-hmm. and that's 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 where that's where my argument is lives mostly is that you have to decide whether a card is worth a slot in your deck. And I think if you're going wide, it doesn't matter that much uh, unless uh, the creature in question has life steal, uh, whether it dies or not. You're just right. going to attack a bunch of guys into it, get some damage through, and then kill them next turn. That's your plan. Uh, mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if their creature dies in that case or their unit. Uh, it's you'd rather have that inflict conscience in that case be another thing on the board doing damage. However, I have had a fair amount of success since I started drafting inflict conscience and trying to draft more controlling style decks because it's a very good toolbox card. If you're drafting a more controlling style deck, you want a, a fair variety of removal spells in if you can find them. And then you get to use the Inflict Conscience when it's going to do the most damage. Uh, and that's when they have something that you can't deal with in any other way. And because the style of deck you're playing is to drop some kind of single threat that your opponent can't deal with, and it doesn't matter what they did up until that point, then just putting Inflict Conscience on something to extend the game for a little while is exactly what you want to be doing. I kind of think like with the units that inflict conscious that you want to deal with is almost a, re- a reverse fall short where like any unit that falls short couldn't hit is probably a unit you want to <laughs> you want to stick inflict conscience on. But my favorite thing is putting it in a deck that has some curse synergy, obviously, because uh, that's always a lot of fun. Yes. Um, but if you have the cobalt coin, which is the uh, which is the the power card mm-hmm. uh, with the onslaught ability of putting inferiority complex, yeah, if you can put an inferiority complex with one of your power cards and then give that thing an inflict conscience, that's a brutal play. Good. So when you're saying controlling deck, is that you have Huru so, sort of a Huru based deck in mind, or do you have like things that you're pairing? justice with more when you're trying to build a controlling base deck uh the last deck that i was successful with uh, i got seven wins with this deck was shadow and primal and i was splashing justice i was splashing the inflict conscience because that was how valuable marginal removal was for me in that deck uh and it was it was it was really good that way there was a t- i had a i had the two three weapon with unblockable the the spectral scythe and yeah. i i killed something by putting inflict conscience on it and then hitting it with the weapon which is not an efficient way to kill something, but it kills anything. Right. And that was pretty good. Uh, it was just a very versatile card in that deck uh, because, again, the whole plan was to get some giant flyer in the air and delay the game until whatever my powerful cards were took over. So I would say that's probably the best combination for control is is Shadow and Primal that mm-hmm. I've personally found. There's probably other approaches to it. Time is good, too, because you have things like Grodoff's Favored, which is an excellent control card as well as an excellent every kind of card. <laughs> um, it's also very good at control. Uh, it neuters your uh, your opponent's biggest threat. 
so some combination of those, but it's probably three color. It's not that hard to splash in this format if you're playing a slower deck. So my card of the week is Oni Stalwart, which is the three justice, one four endurance, mastery four plus two plus two. Uh, the reason I picked this uh, card is because we finally got all the deck lists into our spreadsheet and this card popped out as the number three the third most common card in appearances in all of the seven win deck lists that we've received. Holy cow. And this is a card that I think most good drafters are not very high on. That yeah, I, see. I would agree and with so, that. And so I was just very surprised to see this one up here and very interested to hear that you kind of put yourself in that category of this is probably not that great of a card. Well, my guess for why it is played so often in good decks is that Justice is a good faction, mm-hmm. and Oni Stalwart is uh, just a playable unit in the middle of your curve, and you need to have those. It's not an overtly powerful card, but you have to put something in the three slot, and, and, and what else are you going to put there if you're in Justice? Though what is... Interesting, and maybe that's because I don't still don't know all the cards off the top of my head, but maybe there's not very many good three-drop justice cards as compared to, you know, because my, my first thought, and we'll see this because we'll, later on we'll review the top five list, that you would think uh, the Kodash Evangel would be up there as, like, you, you know, obviously draw strength, probably the number one justice card. But then the second most common card... I feel like would be the Evangel, and yet Oni Stalwart is above it. And so my thought there is maybe because there is that other playable Justice 2-drop, the uh, just the, the, the vanilla 3-2, that people are able to diversify their 2-drop slot a little bit while their 3-drop slot, maybe there just aren't a lot of good Justice 3-drops. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Without looking at the list of commons right now just laid out in front of me, uh, I, I couldn't say for sure that that's true. But it feels like it's true. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm ready to say that it's definitely true. Uh, yeah. No, there are a lot of good two-drops. There's a lot of good two-drops in this format, period. And one thing that a 1-4 with Endurance does is block all of them really, really well. Yeah, and it's boosted, I think, a little bit with Oni Synergy. So. Yes. It can go in, you know, like a more defensive deck where it, I think it would naturally be at home. But then because it is an Oni, people are just jamming it into their aggressive Oni decks, too. Yeah, it's fine once it gets uh, whatever. I don't know. There's a three drop that's a two, three Oni. And if it even attacks once, it puts a plus one, plus two weapon on another one of your Oni. Yeah, uh, that's it's an uncommon, but it's definitely going in every Oni deck you play. So. Once you have a 2-6 with Endurance that gets Mastery in a couple of turns and becomes a 4-8, then it then it's starting to look pretty good. So anyway, so I'm not saying that you should pick this highly. I want to put it on the radar of maybe a, a surprisingly playable 3-drop for Justice because it is showing up a lot in the spreadsheet so far. It also has a great Intimidation factor because it is so hard to deal with once it achieves Mastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people don't want to attack into it, uh, yes. which I think I think that is going to lead into our main topic later too. Is 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 the intimidation factor that prevents people from making correct attacks? Mm-hmm. And the Oni Stalwart is one of the best cards in the format for preventing people from making attacks that they should probably be making. 
I think that is true because I, I, I mean, even me personally, like when that comes down, you're like, oh gosh, I definitely, I cannot beat a three six very easily. So I have to deal with this somehow, and it feels really bad to have to go out of your way to deal with someone's like derpy three drop. Yeah, yeah, it has I, a lot of potential power, even if it doesn't have a lot of pe- power when it uh, hits the board. And uh, yes. yeah. All right, so speaking of you know the top commons, we'll move into our seven-win run breakdown. So for those of you who don't know, we have a long-standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal. Our listeners email us their seven-win deck lists from drafts they've done to Farming Eternal, or you can post them on the seven-win channel of the Farming Eternal Discord, either in exported deck list or as any kind of Eternal Warcry link. Then we take this information, we compile it into a spreadsheet, and that kind of tells us what uh, factions are doing well in the format, as well as what cards are appearing the most in the deck lists. And part of the process is we give a shout out to all the listeners who submitted lists in the past week. And we're, we've been kind of behind, so this is going to be a long list. And before I do shout out all the names, I do want to give a shout out to John Holio, who in the last couple of weeks has taken over from Ben for entering all the decks. So right now, without John uh, having taken over that, this project wouldn't be able to continue. So everyone give a big thank you to John because he's been doing a ton of work behind the scenes. So here are the names. For new contributors, we have Angel A, Apricot Knight, Beard Broken, Blastard, Boss K, Christopher T, Godlight, Grizzly Dan, Jacob P, Jim O, Kidlit1490, Scam. Mark E, Phasmi, Reprieve, The Most Greg, and Ty Tuesday. And then for veteran contributors, we have Aaron J, Abidnego, Abarash, Aboss, Adam H, Agent Dynamo, Barefoot Farmer, Ben Gracier, Kalebovich, Chamomilk, Celtic Guardian 7, Colton S, Comet, Darth Herman 2, Dubes, Dwiggy, Fang Warb, FS Forward Sound, Hats on Lamps, Jedi EJ, Jed the Homerid, John Holio, Jose Carlos 2121, Cassandra, Lucas H, Mancio 1982, Marshall, Matty Oker, MLNTN, Murder of Crows, Ninja Cam, Nothership, Ol Rich, Parmalee, Tatamaru, PKTT, Raven Dragon, Rofer, Sidetracker, SSJ 1997, Spiffy Man, Sigurly 42, Starstorm, Sunblaze, Tall Shark and Handsome, Tempest Dragon, Twin Hex, Way Q, Yam Yam, and finally Zuby. How oh, we made it. We did it. <laughs> anyway, so thank you, thank you all for sending in the list. It gives us a lot of stuff to talk about on the podcast, and I think it gives everyone in the draft community some data to look at and some interesting results every once in a while. So thank you again for taking the time to submit the list. We appreciate it. All right, so now that we did that, I don't want to spend too much time today because we do have a lot to talk about but i did want to go over the top five i guess six commons of set seven commons by count which is the number of appearances they have in the deck list we also do a normalized count which like takes into account the fact that like some factions are appear less and so cards that are good in those decks we sort of raise the value for them but this is just a straight count of how many have appeared so the top five cards are number one, Grodov's Favored, number two, Draw Strength, number three, the aforementioned Stalwart, Oni Stalwart, then four is Grodov Evangel, 
then Spike Tail Kieran, and then we get our first fire card at number six in Warbrush Oni. So I don't know what what you think, Hats, but when I look at this list, this list, I guess besides for the aforementioned Oni Stalwart, makes a lot of sense to me as being cards that would appear a lot in in seven win deck lists. Yeah, these those are those are all good cards. Um, the Grodov's Evangel is the time one. Yes. I, I, you know, I think that's uh, I, that's not one of my favorite cards either. The Evangels are definitely playable, but I think I value them a little bit lower than some other people. Um, and because the, in the end, they are two twos for two, mm-hmm. and and charge is not the most powerful ability that you can have because it only applies on the first turn that you play it. But I think that's mainly because again, time is so strong as a faction in the first place, and time decks are good, and and any time deck that picks up a, a time evangel is definitely going to play it. So you're going to find it uh, near the top. But yes. I would say Spike Tail Kieran is definitely more powerful. Did it end up below uh, the Evangel in the rankings? Yeah, it did. Uh, there have been more Evangels in deck lists than Spike Tail Kieran's, but Spike Tail Kieran is number five and Evangel sure. is number four, so they're pretty close. This is um, also a relatively small sample size compared to the total number of Eternal games happening, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean... We've had about 130 deck lists submitted, and 105 of them have been time decks. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the next thing I wanted to say, is sort of just the how many of the decks that we've that have been submitted, um, sort of what are the faction breakdowns. So time and justice are sort of neck and neck in the lead. So sort of like you mentioned, Combray just being very strong. So of the 130 or so deck lists that we've received, 105 have been time. 104 have been Justice, 76 are Fire, 68 are Shadow, and Primal, only 54 of the decks have had Primal in them. That breakdown makes sense to me. I personally would probably put Shadow uh, right around the same level as Fire, if not a little bit higher, uh, but that may have something to do with my, my drafting style too. I just haven't had very much luck with fire compared to say the last format um and maybe that's just because i'm not drafting it correctly uh i've certainly been beaten by fire decks uh and and certainly been beaten by fire decks and if it isn't coming together for me it's because of that thing about the onis just not appearing for me when i need them or uh, because the fir- when I was experimenting with the format, I tried to draft uh, very, very aggressive decks, and I didn't really understand how good the defensive units were in this format yet, and mm-hmm. my my little fire dudes just weren't getting through, and so I abandoned fire for a little bit and, and started uh, experimenting with the other factions, and maybe I just never came back to it. I'll yeah. draft it if it's open, but... Yeah, I personally have been having a fair bit of luck with Praxis sort of base decks. Yeah, and I've and I've seen very strong Praxis decks too, um, and probably the strongest deck that I've drafted in the format was a Fire of Justice deck. But I got hooked up with really great rares in that deck, so it's not really representative of the of what that archetype is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then sort of, it's I don't. I don't know how this keeps happening, but once again, Primal is way down there. I think it comes down to the commons again. The commons yeah. in Primal are, they're weird. They're hugely weird. There's no solid unit that you just want to play in all of your Primal decks at all in the commons. 
There is a 2-1 flyer for three, which is okay, but not like spectacular. It's not going to make you play the color all by itself. There's a 3-3 with Overwhelm for four. That's oh, not great. <laughs> you need Muster to make it even good. Uh, yeah. It's and, and then every other card in, in every other common card in Flames of Zalta Primal is a very highly synergy-based card, which you want in some small percentage of your decks if you happen to be playing with that synergy. Uh, there's no good there's no meat and potatoes commons at all. Yeah. So well, you, you did fine. forget the uh, Linrai Evangel, which is actually yeah. the top primal card so far, all the way at our 42nd most common card. Yeah, it's in a bad place, too, because it's the worst Evangel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if charge is a useless ability on a 2-2, uh, Overwhelm is very useless. But I have played against Isomorphic, who seemed to be playing a deck with only Linrai Evangel's and ways to make them bigger so that their overwhelm was effective. And he <laughs> slaughtered me. Slaughtered me good with it. It was like he it was like I'm uh it was like Isomorphic was just proving that they could do that they could do it. That they could take <laughs> the primal commons and make a real deck out of them. Though I will say I've had maybe more fun than luck with the Legion based decks, and I've gotten the must of sort of musterish decks to work pretty alright with me. For me, and so have I. Uh, but the, it's because the draft packs in in pack two and three do a lot of work filling in the power that the that primal doesn't have in its commons in in flames of Zolta. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, I think that the the prim- primal is in a much better shape in the middle of the draft than it is at either end. And then yeah. sometimes you just get all kinds of great uncommons and rares because the primal uncommons and rares are terrific. Yeah, this will be, once again, it'll be interesting to see as the format develops and we get more lists, see whether this changes or not. or Because there's always the issue of we just collect seven win decks, so people could be having pretty good success with primal, but that won't show up in our deck list. You know, if you're just consistently going 4-3 or 5-3, those primal decks aren't going to get submitted. So this is really just showing a snapshot of what decks are doing really well as compared to what decks you can do pretty pretty well with. You can do pretty well on the rankings too without getting any seven win lists. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I don't I think I had only had one or two seven win drafts when I reached rank one. I was winning against less experienced players and only losing to fairly highly ranked players, and so I was just generally creeping upward. And uh, the the draft that I achieved rank one with, I think, was like a 4-3 draft. So you can do fine as long as you play consistently. Don't do what I did this last week, where I was losing to people who have not been playing draft all month, and therefore their rating would tank mine every time I lost a match to them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's a hard thing to control. No, you you can only do so much. So speaking of that, do you have any opinion? I know some people in Discord have been saying they feel like this format is higher variance than previous formats. Is that something you have any thoughts on? I can really only speak to my own experience, mm-hmm. and I have done very well this month consistently up until this last week. So personally, it hasn't been higher variance than other formats for me. But I don't doubt that it's been higher variance for other people. And it could be that I got lucky at the beginning of this month. Uh, I'm not sure. but. 
the, uh, I, I can feel it when I know what I'm doing and when I'm off or I'm playing it on tilt. And there's a direct correlation with how well my drafts go. Mm -hmm. And to me, that means that the variance isn't affecting me uh, overly um, greater than it usually is. I think right. Eternal is a very high variance game in general because of the way uh, because of the way the draft environment is designed. And maybe this is too big a topic to get into because I I don't I haven't really thought about it and tried to articulate it before. But I feel like uh, maybe unlike uh, Magic the Gathering, which many of the designers on this game uh, have, have worked on and played previously, uh, that the draft environments have had more jank per pack than I am used to from drafting mm -hmm. Magic. And that is naturally going to create a lot of variance because no matter how good you are at draft, there are going to be a lot of drafts where you don't get hooked up with what you're trying to do. I actually think this format is a lot better in that regard to where you can almost always put together a playable deck as long as you're reading signals reasonably well and have a general strategy for the format in mind. Um, but I haven't played every format since the beginning of Eternal. I took a long break in the middle, so uh, I don't know how it fits into the history. But I'm happier with this one than than previous ones because at the end of a draft, I'm usually having a hard time cutting eight or so playables from my deck rather than scrambling to put together enough playables to make something coherent. Yeah, I, I agree that there seems to be a lot less of these. I mean, you called it jank, which I think is almost being too kind to some of the cards <laughs> that they put in previous formats. The only time I feel that way in this current format is when I'm in like pack nine or ten and there's just like three horrible primal commons left. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to play any of these or pick any of these. But I think the other colors have way fewer cards where you're just like stone cold, like this is just never making my deck. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Uh, and I think the other argument about uh, it being high variance is because there are so many cards available in the format. Uh, the middle two packs have uh, a selection of cards that are weighted, so you'll see them much more often than the others. And I think those shape the format to where it's reasonably predictable. But you'll also see some completely random things uh, that you can't plan for because the card pool is just something like 800, 900 cards. And for me, I like that overall because it means that the format won't get stale as quickly for me. I will get bored of every format eventually. Um, no matter how well I'm doing in it, because I'll start seeing the same kind of decks uh, again and again. But I think this one will last me a little bit longer because more unexpected things happen. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I do think like the the variance of the middle packs is a little bit more of a false perception because I don't remember if Ben and I talked about this in the last episode, but if you take into account that you see the weighted cards three times as often as the unweighted card, the feel of the middle packs is actually not much bigger than the previous sort of draft packs we had. You know, like those weighted packs, you see them as often as you would see like a normal card in a normal 200 card draft pack because they're weighted, even though they're in like a 700 card pack. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're going to see those, you know, just as often the weighted cards, you're going to see just as often as you would see any random card in the, in the previous draft format, at least. So, 
you're pretty likely to, I guess the point is you're just like pretty likely to see the weighted cards and the unweighted cards you're not very likely to see, even though they will show up. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think I think the weighted card situation uh, gives gives the overall limited environment it, um, a consistent enough feeling where I don't feel like it's complete chaos. But then adds a little bit of that, like very the variance that you're you personally at least are looking for, where you're like, oh, but you never know. Yeah, it's spicy. It's a spicy yeah. format. You know, the one thing I will say in an internal draft environments defense is the one thing I do like about it compared to a lot of Magic draft formats, at least that I've played. I haven't played that much Magic. But is the fact that a lot of the eternal formats feel like pauper formats. As there's there are not there there usually aren't that many bomb rares or bomb legendaries that feel like they just auto win the game when your opponent plays them. And I've always really liked that about the Eternal Draft formats. Yeah, I think that's generally true. I don't remember a format in Eternal where it felt like bombs uh, took over the format to a really, really, really unhealthy degree. Though there are definitely cards that will completely end the game when you play them now, mostly legendaries. I got one of the I got one of the listeners in one of my drafts, for example, and that was a seven zero draft without me even having to think about it. I recently played against it was like eight shadow 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 Ermog something it flies and then when it attacks everything what's it do? It's the craziest card. I think I think I think you're talking about the one where if your opponent's creatures hit you they die. Yeah, what is <laughs> why would they print that on a card i know <laughs> like how, and then when it hits you something crazy happens i think you discard a bunch of cards off your deck or something yeah 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 like 10 cards something i think and i don't think it even has to hit you it's just when it attacks i may i might be just making up a card but i think that's right but it's a it legendary and it costs eight so i guess yeah see i'm i'm much a much bigger fan of sort of slow grindy formats where they're you don't have to worry about these like games where you're just like oh i lose well it never feels good unless you're the one playing the card yeah that's true but i do feel like eternal gives me more of that than um some magic formats where it just feels like there's more cards that can just win the game on the spot the the rares in magic feel stronger than the rares in eternal comparatively Uh, yeah i think that's probably true uh, I haven't played uh, Magic in quite a few years now, but it's uh, I, I remember there being some pretty ridiculous rares in the formats that I did play. Also, it's really nice uh, in Eternal to have a keyword that uh, does not exist in Magic, which is silence. You can silence troublesome units. You can't counter them in Eternal like you can in Magic, but you can silence them, which is a really great catch-all for rares that would otherwise be a serious problem. And I think they did the right thing by putting so many playable silence effects in this limited format because it's a it's a nice sort of like you say you have a grodoff's favorite or two or, or three or four in your deck and you feel safe you know you can handle any problem that your opponent uh, presents you with all right shall we move on to our main topic sure okay so this was your suggestion uh and you titled it attacking are you doing it enough and so what's your thoughts about this well, I was trying to think about what one of the most fundamental differences between a less experienced uh, Eternal Limited player and uh, an experienced good, quote, good Eternal player is. And I think it's aggression. 
I have won a lot of games against players that were clearly inexperienced, not because they didn't play around tricks, not because they didn't realize the full potential of their cards, but because they weren't attacking when they had the advantage on the board. And so I think it's I think there's a lot of situations where you want to be attacking where a lot of players don't. Um, I think good players already know this, but I think it's worth talking about if we're going to talk about, you know, uh, general limited strategy and eternal. Yeah. So how would you like to go about talking about this? Well, uh, I have a couple of examples that I thought of uh, that may or may not be helpful, but let's 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 get into it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so a simple example would be let's imagine that uh, that you have two three three units on the board and your opponent has two two three units on the board and there are no other factors no cards in hand and you'll never draw a card again that's the situation what is the play now i would attack with both of my units there what probably happens is that they will double block one of my three threes with both of their two threes and i will only be able to kill one of their two threes they will be able to kill one of my three threes so we've traded my three three for their two three that's something that I think a lot of players won't do, even though it will leave you with a 3-3 versus your opponent's 2-3, which means you can attack freely and you are racing your 3 damage for their 2 damage. That's clearly an advantage for you, but you have to trade a 3-3 with a 2-3 in order to do that. That's a, a disadvantageous trade for you in the moment. And I think that's what prevents people from doing it sometimes. And I haven't seen that exact thing happen, but in slightly more complicated board states where it's a similar principle, the board state after the attack will be to your advantage and an attacking will give you that board state afterwards. Sometimes people won't do it because of that principle. I don't want to trade a more powerful unit for a less powerful unit in a double block. Yes, I think this is a really a nice, simple, subtle example, because I think even myself, when I think about this situation, it's exactly what you said. You're like, oh, well, I'm trading my, you know, three power guy for their two power guy. And so I'm like losing tempo. It feels bad to, you know, trade down like that. But one of the things, like you said, you just have to look at what the final result of the trade. You don't look at the trade you look at what the board state will be afterwards. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to think about when you're trying to evaluate what your sort of next move should be. Yeah, you th- you want to you want to always be thinking of what's going to be true after at, at the end of your turn rather than what's happening during it. Like l- keep your eye on the end goal. Um, I think what happens for a lot of people, and this certainly happened to me when I was learning to draft magic a long time ago, is that you attach yourself to principles because the game is way too complex to wrap your head around when you're first learning how to play it because there's so many factors. There's so many numbers in front of you. And so you attach yourself to principles such as card advantage. You only draw one card per turn. Your opponent only draws one card per turn. So every time you can trade... Uh, one of your cards for uh, more than one of their cards, that's going to be an advantage for you. And it takes a while to learn that you don't always want to adhere to that principle in every situation. And and that's when you learn how to play aggro correctly, because you realize that if your opponent is dead, if you traded five of your cards for one of their cards, you still won the game. 
Um, and so now that you mentioned aggro, do you think that applies to this situation? Like, is there certain styles of decks where this principle applies more? Or I guess I'm thinking of like another factor when you're when you have your two three threes and they have their two two threes and you have a you have the objectively better board when they have like four cards in hand or whatever and then you would, you do the trade off and now you're down to one three three and one of the thoughts I always have is oh well what happens when they just like play a really good card and I'm like oh I sure wish I had my two three threes here I think that gets into another trap where you are trying to avoid having your opponent do something bad to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead of focusing on bad things you can do to your opponent. <laughs> I think you always want to be thinking about the bad things you can do to your opponent first and worry about their plan later. It's it's a common thing that, that very experienced players will say is that you play to win. You don't play not to lose. I've seen Cassandra say that, uh, and it's absolutely correct. If you have the better plan to win, it really doesn't matter what your opponent does. Because if you execute your plan and they execute their plan and your plan is simply better... Uh, you're still going to win that game, and you don't have to worry about stopping their plan from happening. Okay, so let's take this a little further. Okay. So now, instead of a 3-3, three, three, you drop your Grudov's Favored. Yes. You know, you silence their flyer, you guys are in a bit of a board stall, and your Grudov's Favored, that's a big, beefy guy that, was, that cost you six power to play. Are you trading off with a couple of their weenies? I, I always am. I am every time. I am constantly attacking my Grodov's favored favorites into my opponent's complicated board and just letting them work out what to do about it. And I, I can say for sure that that is not what other people are doing because I've had countless Grodov's favorites played against me and then they just sit there. And it's amazing to me because it is a 6-5. It is the best thing at attacking I can imagine. <laughs> but they don't attack with it. They just let it be a board stall. Uh, and then they're just waiting for me to play another flyer and win the game with it. I'm not sure what the strategy is exactly, but you don't want to lose that thing you spent six power on, I guess. And that's fair. It's reasonable to not want to trade your six power thing for, like, two things that cost uh, two and three power or something. It feels bad. But you are definitely getting rid of their of, of, of some of their blockers that are keeping you from winning the game. Uh, you're taking away options from them because they have to trade something with your Grodov's favored. Um, and you've already silenced their biggest threat and then traded the favored for something else of theirs. You've done a huge amount of damage with one card. And then the other thing is that sunk cost fallacy of having spent six power on a card and then feeling like you need to protect it. I think that's another really valuable thought pattern to rid yourself of if you want to be really good at Eternal because... That power is gone the second you spend it. It no longer matters. It, you like you don't get it back. You don't get to you. You don't get a refund on that, no matter what you do. So your job, once you've summoned something with six power, is to get as much value out of it as possible. Uh, and if you never attack with it for the entire game, you're kind of cutting yourself off at the knees. Yeah, I think the example you just said is you know you hopefully then attack in and then kill off two of their little guys. But the situation where I always am unsure of what to do is when they, for example, have like a bigger board, but two of the units that they have are like a 2-5 and a 3-3. Three, three. So that sure. they're going to be able to double block and only lose one guy. And in your previous example, when it's a 3-3 three, three and a 2-3, you're like, well, you know, the 3-3 three, is obviously better, but they're like close. But you're like, man, I'm trading off my 6-5 for their 2-5. And that feels like a bigger loss in value. 
It does. And it is. But I think it's still usually the correct play because then you get to kill their two five, which means everything that you have that has four attack or more, every one of your units that couldn't attack into that two five at all, now they can attack. So do you have any other examples that you wanted to give? So on the it's a, it's another simple one, but it's a slightly different principle. You have a 4-1. You have the 4-1 Oni on your board. And your opponent has, let's say, an Oni Stalwart, because uh, we were talking about Oni Stalwart earlier. That's a 1-4. If you attack, they have the opportunity to block and trade. In your hand, you have a 6-5 Oni, that uncommon 5-power Oni. It's uh, it's a good, big, efficient beater, and you have the power to play it this turn after your attack. And your opponent has a couple of cards in hand, so what is the play there? So I, I'm assuming, because you said you'll be able to play it when you attack, you're thinking we should attack in, instead of waiting for you to play your guy that can just attack through. Yeah, I would attack there. Um, and again, I think that's something that not every player would do. And it's a little bit more complicated to explain why, but I, I do think it's the right play. So let's say you attack in, and they're probably going to block, and you're probably going to trade, and you're going to put your 6-5 on an empty board. Now, if you don't attack, you can play the 6-5, and that 6-5 is going to be able to attack in freely. But your opponent now has the opportunity to play something else that can interfere with your 6-5's ability to attack. They might be able to play something that can effectively double block, or they can play a weapon on their 1-4. They can do a lot of things, and you are giving them that option rather than taking options away from them. Let's say they play the 4-4 four, four for 5. Uh, I don't remember what it's called. It's some sort of Mandrake or something in time. Now they have a 4-4 four, four and a 1-4, and they can effectively double block your 6-5. You're trading your 6-5 for their 4-4, four, four, and now you're back to the original situation where you have a 4-1 and they have a 1-4, and if you attack, you trade. So if you've already attacked and, you, and the board is clear when you play your 6-5 and they have a 4-4 four, four in their hand and they play it, you have a huge advantage on the board. That's a hypothetical situation, but it's very unlikely that they have something that can match your 6-5 for the same cost. So you want to create a situation where your 6-5 has the best chance to win the game by itself. And in order to do that, you need to clear the board, even though uh, trading your 4-1 for a 1-4 isn't by itself necessarily the correct play. I really like both of these principles. You know, especially, I think, in this format, it it feels really important to keep your opponent's board clear because it feels like there's so many things that they can do to sort of mess you up if they have units on their board. And this is a, a principle. I listen to a lot of uh, magic podcasts, too. And this example that you gave is is sort of one of the principles that they go over and over as sort of a level up moment for getting better at magic is just that like magic pros just use their creatures and cards more and more effectively than people who aren't pros. And I think this this example fits that exactly. Like your 4-1 is not doing anything on the board. It's never making it through that 1-4. And so you might as well just kill the 1-4 and clear the way for your future cards instead of giving your opponent more options, like you said. You're trying to limit your opponent's options, and one of the ways to do that is to get rid of their cards and to get rid of their board. 
And also, you have a huge amount of information during that turn that your opponent doesn't have, which is the cards in your hand. Uh, they're in a position where they don't know whether they should block and trade or not. They don't know if you have a trick. They don't know that you have a large creature to play that same turn. And if you are aggressive and you are attacking constantly, you're putting your opponent in a position where they have to make all of the hard decisions. Yeah, the the one other thing about do people not attack enough a lot that I, I wanted to talk about and hear your thoughts are the thing that I notice this the most in is when watching streamers and there you have the streamers full information and you can see the opponent's board, but you don't know what the opponent has in your hand. And there's like so often where you're just like, well, this streamer's just dead. Or I guess this happens with, with you too, where you're like, all the opponent has to do is attack and you're dead. And they're just like playing overly cautiously. Obviously, they don't know your hand, but you're just like, I feel like there's so many times where I'm watching streams and I'm just like, screaming at the opponent to just a space and kill the person and they're just like trying to make these like complicated super safe attacks that just gives the streamer time to draw out of the situation yeah yeah it happens all the time and it happens all the time to me in my games where somebody will really just have me they'll they'll just have overwhelmed me with the power of their deck but they won't make they won't go for the kill and I'll somehow pull out a win, and that's another that's another step up the ladder for me. You know, it's a game that could have easily uh, that shouldn't that shouldn't have been mine. And when you play a whole bunch of Eternal games, then getting that one win out of seven, or however often that kind of thing happens, makes a big difference. So this is totally off topic, but sure. where do you stand on holding a power in your hand to just make it look like you have a card? I do I do it all the time. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, I think that I think that essentially tapping out and showing your opponent everything that you have at your disposal, everything that you have at your disposal, is an outright error. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because uh, again, it's it's not off topic. It's exactly the same principle. Because if you have a card in your hand, then your opponent might not attack because they don't want to feel bad uh, if they walk into a trap. It's it's a great tool. I, I will always play a power if it's going to potentially make a difference in what I can play. I'm never going to bluff something that will interfere with my actual ability to play my cards. But uh, holding a power or even two, if I know what's in my deck and I know it won't interfere with what I'm doing, uh, I'll do it every time. Yeah, that's interesting. Because that's the other one that um, Magic Pros, at least, always a lot of them say, oh, just the, the bluff is not worth it. But I don't know if it's maybe just in Eternal, but in Eternal, the bluff really feels worth it. And maybe this is just showing that I'm not a great player, but I feel so much better when my opponent has no cards in their hand than when they have one card in their hand. Uh, no, I do too, uh, because then I don't have to play around anything. Often I'll just have the soul read on my opponent and I'll know they don't have anything in their hand and I know that that's a sigil or whatever. Uh, but I don't know that 100% of the time. There's a lot of things that people can keep in their hands for a long time because they weren't appropriate to play earlier. So when that last sort of frustrated, like, this is it, this is this is the sigil that I've been having in my hand, do with me what you will move that a lot of players will do, is great. I know I've won the game then. <laughs> yeah. That's what I, that's what I just A space, A space, A space, because uh, that's it. That's The game is over at that point. 
And, you know, the final point is this format has cards like draw strength. We kind of talked about this earlier, where this does feel like a format where it's good to trade off your opponent's units. And I think draw strength is a prime example of that, where that is a card where not only do you want to get rid of your opponent's units, I mean, if you don't have it, if you're, you know, if you're playing against a justice deck, you also want to get rid of your units because that is a card that can blow you out. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's one of the best cards in the format, if not the best common in the format. And like Grodov's Favorite is a terrific, terrific card, but it also costs six, so you don't get to play it every game. Whereas Draw Strength, you get to play it every game and it wrecks your opponent every time. So yeah, yeah, keeping the board as clear as possible if you're not in Justice and your opponent is, is, is a real good idea. Uh, that was really great, Hats. Thank you for, I think there was a lot of good information there. So shall we move on to the draft? So this is a little different. We're not starting on pack one, pick one here. We're starting on pick six. So I'll read to everyone the um, what we have in our pool so far. So, so far we're mainly, we picked a bunch of time cards. We started pack, pick one and pick two. We picked up two Edicts of Grodov, the Time Edict, which allows you to bounce a unit or if they're Primal or Shadow, put it at the bottom of their deck. Uh, then we picked up a Swaying Sea Kieran and a Spike Tail Kieran. And then in pick five, we picked up a Warbrush Oni. Okay, so our first four picks were time cards, and then we picked a Warbrush Oni as pick five. So okay. now we're going into pick six. Uh, cards of contention, there's another Warbrush Oni as the fire card. The only time card in the pack is a Wilderness Refuge. And then there's the Justice Evangel, the Kodash Evangel. In Shadow, there's a Reconnaissance, and in Primal, there's a Sky Horror Draconis. What are you thinking as far as this pick goes? I, I would have to have seen the other packs to be absolutely sure about this, because uh, it, that's part of trying to find your lane and, and seeing which factions are open. Uh, the obvious pick, I think, and the easy pick is the other Warbrush Oni, because it gives you a clear direction. Uh, you're, you've, got, you've got three pretty strong two drops and the edict of grodovs are are very good if you're playing an aggressive deck mm -hmm. but also uh and this is just personal my my personal style of drafting at this point and i'm always learning uh i would see these two justice cards and maybe hedge my bets that if if justice turns out to be open i want to start out strong in it so there's a real possibility i would take the kodash evangel here uh, mm -hmm. Because it is a really solid start if you end up in Justice. And if it turns out that Fire is more cut than Justice later in the packs, I would want to be in Justice. I'm not saying for sure that I would take it, uh, but I think it's between those two. Yeah, and like you just mentioned, there is a second Justice card, the Prancing Griffin. So I also took the Warbrush Oni here. Um, like I said, I was having a bit of luck with Praxis decks. And I've also had a lot of luck with staying really solidly in one color and but the wilderness refuge just didn't seem like a good enough card to just like keep forcing time in pack one for me it's so a, it's a playable card but not with it doesn't go well with the cards you already have it obviously activates muster for the swaying sea kieran but the rest of the cards don't suggest that you're going to be in a ramp style deck right so now pick seven cards in contention there are no time or fire cards and then there is a makar evangel the shadow evangel there are two justice cards the best one being the long tail cavalry 
And then in Primal, there's a Fear Stoker Raven, the um, uncommon that you mentioned earlier, the four Primal 05 that gets bigger when you discard. So do you have any thoughts about this pick? I think it's an easy Longtail Cavalry. Uh, Fear Stoker Raven is a very synergy-based card, and you don't have any support for it so far. Uh, I think it's great if you pick it up early and then get the support later, but you can't count on it. Makara Vangel is a terrific card, but it would be your first shadow card, and I I don't think it's as strong as the Longtail Cavalry if you're going to go into a new color. So you think it's different than the previous pick where you would have picked up the Kodash Evangel as your first Justice card? You think in this pack, because the the Cavalry is just a better overall power level that you're not sort of using Evangel as your a signal to go into a new color? Yeah, in the other pack, the Evangel is just the best card in the pack. So as as a single card, I mean, I'm putting it above the Warbrush Oni, um, and I don't don't necessarily know that that's right. Uh, statistics have proven me wrong on that so far. But I think Longtail Cavalry is a better card than the Evangel, and also it doesn't look like we're going to be hurting for two drops, especially with a Praxis base. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you end up having to abandon fire. Uh, you'd rather have a cavalry than uh, than the evangel, even if you're in a very aggressive deck. The cavalry is just so hard to deal with unless your opponent has silence. That's actually also interesting because I'm not that high on cavalry, but everyone else seems to be a lot higher than I am. I think you can overload on them, and it is a five cost card. But I, my experience with it is that it just makes your opponent's day a lot worse when it comes down, and yes. so. <laughs> that's good enough for me uh it's a 2-1 for five so it looks like it shouldn't be that great but exalted has overperformed from where i expected it to be in this format i think that is also a, a common theme but i i feel like this card is always like a great card for my opponent and always a 2-1 for five when i play it yeah but- uh, I think that you can't uh, be too... I, I like to rate cards based on how I feel when my opponents play them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I, f- I feel like that's a more reliable metric than how I feel when I play them or when I win with them. Because it's easy to say, oh, I played this card and it wasn't very good for me, uh, therefore uh, never again. But when I see what my opponents are doing with it, then I think I feel like I, uh, then I, feel like I see the full potential of them. So now we're going into pick eight, and just as a reminder, I picked up the Warbrush Oni and then had the branch out of Praxis because there were no Praxis cards into Longtail Cavalry. And so then pick eight, cards in contention, there's a Green Stretch Empath in Primal, so another pretty good Primal Uncommon, though a little synergy-based. There's a second Swaying Sea Cairn for me, and then there's another Longtail Cavalry. Uh, I mean, this is going to depend on what you've already picked for sure. Uh, there's a big part of me that just wants to take the Green Strength Empath because it's so it's so ridiculously good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, like you don't you you don't even have to muster with it. It's just it it just makes your opponent so sad when it's on the board. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. I sound like I sound sadistic, but this is in in general. You do want your opponent to be in a worse mood than you, uh, at least for the stretch of the game, and then you shake yes. hands afterwards. But I I don't know that it's the best pick. Uh, it's just it's just one of my favorite cards when I. And uh, when when I even when I have to splash for it, I think that Swaying Sea Kieran is probably the best pick because you're in time and it is a solid monster, even no matter what style of deck that you end up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the discipline pick uh, because I've been having a lot of luck with splashing and playing more controlling decks lately. 
Um, I'm very inclined to take the empath whenever I can because I think it's uh, even if you attack, even if you activate it once, uh, it's it's one of the best cards in the whole format. But I'm being very emotional about it right now. The discipline pick is definitely uh, the swaying sea Kieran because you know you're in time. But it might also be the long tail cavalry, honestly, uh, depending on how. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people on Farming Eternal that would just say, nope, always Longtail Cavalry. Just Longtail Cavalry if it's in the pack. And they might very well be right. I haven't personally had an experience with it that it's that good, but there's no denying that it is a good 5-drop. That's interesting, because my take on this pack started very similarly, where I just when I see his green stretch empath, it is really hard. I have to like really buckle down to not take every green stretch empath that I see. But then swaying sea Karen would be my natural instinct of the the card that I would the discipline card. But then I was getting nervous because I didn't see any time cards in the last pack. So and and the pack before that, the only time card was a wilderness refuge. So then I was thinking, oh well, is time cut? And so then the actual discipline pick is the cavalry. And am I just thinking this swaying sea Karen because I'm being biased? by my early picks, which aren't necessarily signals. Yeah, you can really twist yourself in knots. But I think having a Swaying Seek here in this late in the pack is a good sign that it's not completely cut. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I find that the you can't really base too many of your picks on a color being cut for one or two packs because that's just how these packs work out. They start with only 12 cards, and sometimes they start without any good choices in any of the factions so they basically start pre-cut in whatever faction Mm -hmm. you want them to be so you really have to see a trend over like three or four packs before you start saying okay these factions are being cut and these are wide open uh swing c kieran isn't like a slam dunk pick for everyone so the variance of of different people's valuations of the card is a factor here too but i think (laughs) seeing this late means that you're not going to be completely cut on time Okay, so then the next pick, Cards in Contention, there's a Rainfall Accord and a Yeti Griffin in Primal, which we don't have, but we have been seeing a lot of Primal cards. Uh, the only time card is the Chant to Grodov, not a great card, and then there is the Praxis um, Dual Faction card, the Champion Grappler, the 6 Praxis 5-5 five, five, Charge Overwhelm, Mastery 6, plus 2, plus 2. So what do you think in this pack? Uh, I think it's I think it's an easy grappler. Uh, you don't have any six drops yet, um, and it's a fine top end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, it's obviously the best card in the pack. I guess I was surprised when I saw it because I was feeling like fire and time was cut, and I was just like, and this is such a good card. I'm always like, why is this going so late? And... I've been seeing so many primal cards. I was wondering if I'm supposed to like eventually take the hint, but that's the I problem mean, with I, primal. I, these these comments are not. I mean, even if you end up in primal, now you've got a bunch of Yeti Griffins and Rainfall Accords, and it's not a real deck. <laughs> yeah. So I I did take the Champion Grappler. It's just too strong of a card, and I do have a lot of Praxis cards. But I was at this point in the draft, personally, I was like not feeling great about it because it felt like. I don't know. I just was feeling like this. the draft was all over the place, at least is what cards I was seeing. I think you're in great shape, actually. Oh, well, I thank you. 
so, so then the final card of uh, this pack, that uh, the final pick of this pack is the next one. And cards in contention, there is, once again, a primal card, the Thunderclaw Raven, which is the three power 2-1 flyer. There is the Crowd Queller, which is not a great weapon. And then there's an Intrepid Longhorn. Easy, easy Longhorn for me. Yeah, it's an easy Longhorn. But again, this is just, a, I think, another example of where it just felt to me like the draft is messy. But it's interesting to hear where you're not you're not viewing this, I think, as a messy draft. No, so I, no, this is a normal draft. So I feel like this is a really good perspective for me because I think one of the problems I have is just when I have a draft that is like quote unquote messy. I just like need someone to tell me that it's not messy, and then I feel a lot better about the draft. Yeah, you have a ton of time cards. You're not settled on your second faction yet. It could be fire. It could be justice, and uh, and that's a fine position to be in. You've already got a solid base of units uh, in time. And then you just have to develop a more coherent strategy once you figure out how things are going to go in the in the next two packs. Because packs two and three will tell you a lot more about what factions are truly open and which ones are uh, pretending to be open. Uh, mm-hmm. Because everyone is in the same position in the first pack where they're just sort of like picking semi-randomly because they're trying to figure out what lane they should be in. And I think collectively that creates a situation where every first pack is always messy so we're just going to go over um two or three more picks here so this is pack two uh pack two pick one right now like we just said we mostly have time we have a few justice cards i personally picked the two long tail cavalries so i have the two long tail cavalries as my justice cards i have the intrepid longhorn which is also justice and then we have a champion grappler so we're going into Pack two, pick one. Cards in contention. There's the Emerald Ring. There is a Ruination Sledge. And there's a Lightning Strike, I think, are the best cards in this pack. So what are you thinking out of this pack? Uh, I think Ruination Sledge. So does that mean that you are you think it's the best card by far? Or are you just valuing the, the fire cards that we have in our pool more? Uh, I think it's the best card by far. That's the that's the whole reason for it. I think it's an absurd card in this format. Mm-hmm. There's so many good attachments to kill uh, between just the solid weapons uh, that that you can put on things and the yeah. exalted weapons. Being able to kill one of those things and make one of your creatures more powerful in the same turn is a terrific play. I think Ruination Sledge is a splashable card in this format. Um, I'll just play it. Because I know some people think Emerald Ring is almost like a, a bomb level-ish card. because yeah. it, you get I'm so not much... one of those people. And do you think that's because... I guess that's not... This is... I've, I already know the answer to this because you say you play a lot of controlling decks, but... Based on our main topic, it seems like you attack a lot more, and so hopefully the games are not lasting quite as long, so you're not getting as much value from it. Yeah, I should clarify. I'm trying to play more controlling decks now, and I started the format trying to play very aggressively. And Emerald Ring isn't a great aggressive card, and it's not great when you're doing a lot of trading. It's not necessary when you're doing a lot of trading, because you're probably going to have a superior board to your opponent anyway, and you don't need the help. Uh, Emerald Ring is really good in certain types of decks, and it's it's pretty good in... I don't know. I'm not even sure what that deck would be, though. I just haven't had very good luck with it, and I haven't been beaten by it very often. So my valuation is, is uh, of the card is pretty anecdotal, but mm-hmm. uh, I just haven't seen it perform all that well. Yeah, I guess I was imagining it could go well in 
there are a fair number of small flyers. This It's pretty good with flyers, though flyers are pretty good. And then it also does have a little bit of mastery synergy, though again, it is a bit slow in that, but... I think if your limited style is that you tend to gum up the board on purpose and then break out of board stalls, either with flyers or by building one unstoppable unit, then Emerald Ring is going to fit into that strategy. I don't generally build decks with that uh, with that end goal, and so Emerald Ring doesn't fit into my overall strategy. Um, but if I had a deck that was trying to do that, then I'd certainly consider Emerald Ring, but uh, because that's not the kind of decks that I usually have. Like a straight controlling deck doesn't need it because my individual threats that I'm planning to win the game with don't need to be any bigger than they already are. And, and then in a more tempo-based uh, deck, then uh, the Emerald Ring is just too slow. So it, it, maybe it's because I don't know how to draft decks that would take advantage of the Emerald Ring, but it's just never something, it's just not an effect that I'm usually looking for. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a pretty, that's a really good analysis of that. I think it was better in the last format uh, when Renown was a common ability because activating Renown was a really powerful thing to do. I don't think there's anything that has quite that level of synergy now. So then um, pick, uh, pack two, pick two, I think is not super interesting. I don't think it was a great pack. I ended up taking a piercing shot out of it as, I think, one of yeah. the better cards in my color. I think that's right. But then uh, I did want to ask you about pack two, pick three. So cards in contention, there's not a lot of great cards, I think, in this pack either. Um, and there's no really good fire card. There are no time cards. So the best cards in the pack, there is an aggressive Urzine in Primal, the four Primal Primal, four three, Onslaught. Your other units gain plus two health. There is a Headhunter, which is the one Justice two one, twist two to play a wanted poster on an enemy unit. And there is a token of vision, which is the time justice shadow token. So what do you think about this pack? It's not a good pack. This is what happens in Primal a lot, is that you're not in it at the end of the first pack, and then these great uncommons start showing up. But I don't think that I would move in on Aggressive Ursine here as your first Primal card, um, because it's not splashable. You, It's a tempo card, and you need to be able to play it on curve. So here I probably uh, just grit my teeth and take the Tinker, because it's a playable card. Okay. So yes, there is a Tinker in the pack, too. Headhunter is fine, but I think it's an awkward card uh, that gets outclassed easily. I think Tinker has has more raw power, mm-hmm. um, giving giving plus. I, I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong about this because it wasn't even in your cards in contention. But um, I would probably. I, I don't like tokens. I think this is another thing where I differ from uh, a, a fair number of folks. Unless I'm planning to splash those the unless I'm planning to play those exact three colors. I, I think the the fact that it comes into play depleted is just too much of a of a handicap. Yeah, that that's really interesting to hear because this was my this was I was really debating between the aggressive Urzine and the token of vision, and um, I don't have any shadow cards yet. But the fact that the token was in two of my potential colors was kind of raising its weight for me. But you know, earlier you said that you thought this was a very splashable format, so. It's a little surprising to me that's for you to say you don't really value the token. So where are you finding the cards to splash? I I, pick, uh, I don't pick up the tokens preemptively. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I'll pick up I'll pick up seats like the seat of order in this pack uh, mm-hmm. over over a token 
because they sometimes come into play undepleted. Uh, and I think that's a huge upside. Mm -hmm. uh, I will take Bannerman almost uh, over almost anything, and they they are a pretty common card. And there's a there's that card that um, this is going to seem like I'm contradicting myself because it always comes into play depleted. But there's a card in, in the Flame of Zolta packs that's a power. Uh, it comes into play depleted, and it it's a, a, a one influence point in a faction that you don't have yet. Mm -hmm. I think that one, since it can be any color, is really good as a splash card. Uh, whereas a token, if it's not splashing a color that you are definitely using, uh, can't do that. So it's more versatile than the tokens. And then because I'm usually in time, uh, there's all the time cards that can create faction influence, uh, yeah. like the like the uncommon humbug in the in the middle two packs. And, and Trailmaker still in the trail format. Trailmaker still in the format and. Uh, I don't remember what's in the Flame of Zolta packs. Maybe nothing, but there's enough in the middle two packs that I usually don't have too much trouble splashing. Yeah. So, I agree. Time is great. Yeah, time's great. <laughs> <laughs> we might want to rebalance things in the in some future things so the primal works and time doesn't work as well. After laying out your argument, I kind I I do like your workshop tinker. I took a flyer here on the aggressive Ursine in my draft, and then in the next pack there was the next pick there was also not really any great cards and then i ended up taking a master cartographer and then primal was like totally cut for the rest of pack two and three and the thing that led me to take the aggressive resign was first off you know it was still in the pack here um and then also that primal even though there were no great primal cards and i didn't take any of them in pack one it was open in pack one so i thought you know if I if it was open in pack two and three, and then I could get some in pack four, you know, maybe that's where the direction my draft was supposed to go. But it seems like you're not buying that. Uh, no, I think that's a perfectly good argument, actually, because the Tinker's uh, fairly likely not to make your deck in the end anyway. Um, so I think speculating on a much, much more powerful card is, is perfectly fine there, because uh, you're not going to play almost anything in this pack, and so if you just happen to end up in Primal, you're going to be very happy to have the bear. All right, so I think that's where we'll end the draft. This draft, it kept sort of taking a bunch of twists and turns, but I ended up back around to Praxis and just was a straight Praxis deck. I think I splashed a Bear Arms, and that was it. And did pretty well with the deck. I went 4-0, and I went 4-0 to 4-3, and just had like three heartbreaking losses in a row, which I guess didn't feel great. But the deck, when it performed, felt pretty solid. So it was kind of interesting because, well, now I feel like a little less good about it because when I was after I was drafting it, I was like, "Whew, I made it through this like really tough and complicated draft." But you're just like, "Oh, this is a normal draft." So this maybe I just need to. I just need to buck up a little bit, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that. I'm sorry if I made you feel bad. I, I didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> with my optimism, no. That's this is my experience with basically every single draft is that it feels terrible the whole time, and then I somehow make a deck out of it. Funny that you say that after you said that this is the more playable format. Yeah, that's how I feel every time I draft. In yeah. case you're wondering how it feels to work your way up to rank one and then stay there for a couple of weeks, it feels awful. It feels good. It feels great. I brag about it to people who have never played the game, and then they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> but it also feels bad the whole time. That's, that's, that's life. 
All right. So I think we're going to end our show there. So first off, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really great. And I think we've had a lot of interesting discussions. So thank you so much for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. And then once again, I'd like to thank all our patrons for making the show success. And a reminder to give us a five-star uh, a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Join us in our Discord. There's a link uh, down below in the show notes. As well as thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts. And don't forget to send all your seven-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.